So first off, last week was National Nurses Week. So big shout out to any of our listeners that were ner- that are nurses. Uh, today we're splitting up the new segment into three parts. First, a brief overview of Canada's current state of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. And uh, second, some interesting news for COVID recovery in other parts of the globe and some studies on reopening. So first with Canada, to date, about 41% of Canadian adults have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Based on an article published yesterday by Global News, we can actually expect Canadians to be eligible to receive vaccines sooner than anticipated. In May, about 2 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine will flow into Canada every week, and Canada is also set to receive uh, 655,000 AstraZeneca doses through the COVAX program. Overall, Canada's vaccine rollout is really set to ramp up over the couple uh, next couple of weeks. And many provinces, including Ontario and Quebec, are set to have vaccine appointments available to anyone over 18 within the next month. So that's really great news from Canada. I know some people were uh, are concerned about the variants and uh, looking more into the news there. Uh, on one of our episodes, we uh, when we had Pfizer on, we mentioned how Israel was leading the vaccination rollout globally uh, with the vaccines for, from Pfizer. And as such, the country has been a crucial source of clinical information with regards to vaccine efficacy in different demographics and uh, different variants. So two recent studies published last week uh, from data based out of Qatar and Israel provided more insight into the efficacy of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine against the UK and South African variants. So data, data from Qatar showed that two weeks after the second dose, the Pfizer vaccine effic- effectiveness against infection from the B117 variant or the UK variant ranged from 87 to 90, 89% uh, against the B1 351 variant or the South African variant, it ranged from 72 to 75 percent. Findings out of Israel, where about uh, 95 percent of cases are those of the B117 variant, uh, echoed some of the same results. So more promising still is data from both Israel and Qatar that showed that the vaccine is more than 97 percent effective at preventing severe or fatal COVID-19. Now let's jump from Israel and Qatar to UK, where more beyond clinical data, research has started on reopening measures. So the UK's fast-moving vaccination campaign has given almost two-thirds of adults at least one shot, and the government is slowly lifting their restrictions and are looking to ways to uh, return to normalcy, both economically and socially. Last week, about 6,000 partygoers in Liverpool became part of the first restriction reopening study. The test was put into place to see whether physical distancing measures can be eased without triggering new outbreaks. So event goers didn't need to socially distance or wear face masks while at the event, but they needed to show a negative COVID test 24 hours before attending the event. Party goers are also going to be encouraged to take the PCR test five days after their night out to make sure any spread of the virus is properly monitored. And overall, scientists are using this event to look at whether crowd mixing and dancing indoors increases transmission of the virus. And they'll be using a variety of data, including carbon dioxide monitors within the event to uh, track or monitor pockets of stale air within the menu. Venue. Actually, 
uh, using cameras to track individual movement, and of course, data from the PCR tests that will come out to really make judgments on uh, virus transmission and whether that event led to any new outbreaks. Uh, so I thought this was a very interesting study uh, looking more at how can we return back in the clubs? I don't know, Tyler, are you missing the clubs that these studies are very important to you too? I'm missing anything. I'd miss a book club right now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think obviously we don't have a huge look behind the scenes as to what public health authorities are doing in terms of research when they are reopening, what kind of data they're using to decide what can open again and what can't. But it kind of feels like sometimes they just look at the cases dropping and then they start opening things and they're just whimsic, like opening things based on those cases being lowered. And that can seem a little uh, unsubstantiated by data. So it's good to see that there's studies happening with regards to when you open up something new, how is that affecting spread? How is COVID spreading in those environments? And that can help inform other countries on when they're trying to open things. So data, data like this from that UK study, that's going to be interesting to see. And it should definitely help inform places like Ontario or Canada that are going to be lagging behind a little bit, but can use that data when they're trying to reopen in the future. For sure. I think a big part of this study will also just be um, monitoring behavioral and movements at a, at a venue. For example, if transmission can be tracked in an individual uh, using maybe the camera data to see where that individual moved and what was the point of transmission, uh, how can that be uh, minimized in risk in the future and by implementing new uh, protocols within clubbing. So maybe our clubbing will look very different uh, from a behavioral perspective when we go back to clubs. So interesting study overall. Uh, happy for those 6,000 people. They got to have a couple nights out. <laughs> With that, that's the end of the news segment. We'll now jump it off into the interview. Greg Kennedy is the Director of Strategy at the Hospital for Sick Children. With a Master's of Epidemiology and Population Health from Queen's University, Greg has amassed extensive experience in clinical research, public health leadership, and project management. As a director at SickKids, Greg's team focuses on strategic planning, partnership development, and management of emerging digital technologies. Thank you so much for joining us in the Healthcare Hub podcast. It's great to have you here, Greg. Great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. And, and just off the top, before we dive in, want to commend the two of you for taking the time and having the courage to put this podcast out there in the world. I know there's always varying reception to people trying to generate content. So good on you for taking the leap, putting yourselves out there, doing your homework and improving as you go. Oh, it's impossible without guests like you hopping on to help us out, Greg. So we're excited to have you, excited for this talk. And uh, I guess that'll kick things off here. So we're going to start early on in your career here, like we do with all our other guests, to get uh, a, a good image of young Greg and how you started off your career. So you started your undergraduate degree at McGill University, and you were it was a, a mix of cell biology and business management. Now, did you always think you were going to end up in a career where you combine the two of those? Did you favor one of them over the other? What was the balancing like there? You know, I, I think it's it may be even uh, important to start a little further back just to get a sense of what my worldview might have been going into that. Uh, I grew up in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. So that's for those of you who may not know it, it's about eight hours north of Hamilton in Toronto uh, on the shores of Lake Superior up in northern Ontario and uh, kind of the land of lakes and forests and rivers. 
And uh, I had gravitated towards science and English through high school. So when I was gearing up to apply to university, I kind of just thought I would go to university for a few years, move right back to Sault Ste. Marie and, you know, maybe go to medical school right after. But um, when I was in my last year of high school, I had probably one of the biggest inflection points in my life. I had wanted to play college basketball. And when you live up in Northern Ontario, no one's driving up there to look at talent or recruit people. Uh, so I was thinking I had already accepted to go to the University of Guelph and I was going to take my shot as a walk on there. And uh, in my last year of high school, I just happened to have a basketball game in the city. The McGill coach happened to be at the game. I had a good night, ended up getting recruited uh, to go to McGill. And so even though I had never been to Toronto once at that point in my life, I think I'd been on an airplane one time, never been to Quebec, um, off I went to McGill and, uh, and started out in the science program there. But uh, to your question around the combination of science and business, I each summer that I was at McGill, I would go home and I would work in a community health center in Sault Ste. Marie. And at the time, there was pretty large physician shortages up in the north of Ontario. So a lot of the physicians who were in my orbit there, pretty burned out. And, you know, you just hear a lot of comments flying around like, you know, if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't necessarily go into medicine, something that's perhaps more lucrative and less time intensive. And so that that actually dissuaded me from the medicine track. I never wrote the MCAT, never applied to med school but I hopped into the business minor. And uh, the business minor, I, I found it really interesting. I hadn't had business exposure up to that point with my science at McGill. And I think that was probably a first step in what became a bit of a choose your own adventure pathway uh, through my career today. That's really cool. At, a, at such a young age to kind of have that realization is, is cool. I think a lot of us in the MBA program are still figuring it out as we go, kind of testing waters. Uh, but that's that's awesome. And you kind of uh, what jumped into business and uh, stuck there for a while. And with that, it actually leads us into our next question. We see that after your undergraduate degree, you did go on to pursue a master's of epidemiology and population health at Queen's. So at what time did you begin um, the looking at that program or uh, were you looking at that program more to head towards academia or were you hoping to work with more community organizations and population health management in doing this master? It, it's funny, it may look more calculated than it was at the time. It was really almost a default pathway because if you were in science at the time and, you know, like keep in mind, this is 2004, I'm finishing up at McGill, like don't even have that much internet, don't have mobile phones yet. Um, there's just not, it's, it's still pretty hard to find information about what's out there. And when I got off the kind of medicine dentistry track, what, what the more prescribed pathways look like, you're really just looking into the unknown. Like I, even, um, you know, MBAs at the time even were like, usually you wouldn't go into an MBA until you had six or eight years experience back then. So that wasn't really an option for me. It didn't feel like the MHAs just weren't on my radar at the time. And so I was like, I want to stay in the health sciences, but I have no idea how to do that. Um, and I just started Googling. Uh, I think it was like web crawler at the time. 
And uh, I found epidemiology and population health. You know, I didn't want to be in a bench science. I knew that. So it was a it was an option that kept me in the health sciences and it didn't really give me a defined pathway, but it, you know, I wasn't ready to jump out into the work world and that masters, you know, it was, it was awesome. It, um, it really gave me um, a, a critical thinking mindset and ability to kind of unpack complex problems and find new ways to solve them. Also gave me a pretty heavy analytics toolbox as well. Uh, it was a two-year master, so it was a year of coursework followed by a year of thesis work, which is like heavy biostatistics. And uh, I think through the end of my second year, I saw a lot of value in what I had learned, but it was pretty clear to me that I wasn't going to become an epidemiologist and I didn't want to be doing really focused research. Um, so I used it really as a springboard. There's a lot of jobs out there, and again, not prescribed pathways, but a lot of jobs out there that... Um, if you have something in the health sciences, there's a lot of doors that can be open for you if you find them. So that was the case with me. And, and again, I just kind of dove into the work world in a paint by numbers fashion, never really knowing where I was going in those early stages. Yeah, that's definitely the, the common theme with a lot of our guests, just kind of go through school in an area that you're interested in, pop out of school and in a career that seems applicable and, and find your path as you go. But uh, throughout school, even in undergrad, throughout your master's, you did do a lot of, uh, you took a lot of research opportunities, like at the Group Health Center in Sault Ste. Marie, and the KFL and A Public Health in Kingston. So were you, you it seems as though there was somewhat of a interest in research throughout your studies, and even your first roles were in research. Did you, did that seem kind of like the path you want, like you were drawn towards at first, you thought research is kind of the way here, or was that more of a door into something similar to what where you're at now? I was always curious in the science. So research was a nice natural fit with that, but even more so than a personal preference or gravitation towards research, really with the pedigree that I had at the time, those were the jobs that were available to me. Uh, pivoting out into something that's more like what I'm in now just wasn't either on my radar and, and not that much of an option, I don't think, at that point in my career. So, you know, getting in through the side door of research into a few different areas of the health system was my way in, and it allowed me to get kind of exposure and experience uh, to this health levels. So speaking of your early kind of research work, one of your first jobs uh, out of school and out of your master's uh, was a research associate in uh, population studies and surveillance of Cancer Care Ontario. Was there anything specifically that drew you towards cancer care? Uh, and what really were some of your care, uh, key takeaways from this uh, position? At the time, uh, Cancer Care Ontario was an independent agency in the province. It's now been folded in to Ontario Health. But back then and still now, it's one of the world leading agencies in the advancement of cancer services. So it was an attractive organization as a first job. You know, in a way, beggars can't be choosers at that point coming out of school. But uh, it worked out for me that it was a really attractive position. Uh, the role I had there was pretty steeped in analytics. It was surveillance work and health system quality improvement work. So it was a really nice first foray. It was like one step out of epidemiology, but one foot still in. 
And it uh, was a first bit of exposure to the really complex dynamic health system that we operate in and how the moving pieces fit together. And uh, it gave me a, a really a first exposure. And I think that's where my love affair with, uh, you know, health system design and performance really started to grow. You bring up analytics, and that's definitely an area of overlap between business and population health and science in that those are very marketable, hard skills that people like that are in our position in an MBA program or any other early career pr- position are trying to build. Are, are there any particular hard skills you think you built either through your education or through early job experience or research experience that you think made you more attractive when you were looking for that first job coming out of school or like, was it a certain coding platform or you just proficient in Excel? What were the skills you think that really gave you a, a good foundation for that? I think in landing my first few initial jobs, it really was the analytics that probably was the selling point on my CV at the time. Uh, most of the platforms that we would use for coding then, I think are maybe not so in fashion anymore, but coming out of a master's in epidemiology, you do a lot of biostatistics. So you're pretty well-rounded in your analytics. And, and I think that's what got me in the door uh, over my first couple of jobs. And we'll probably get to those. One of the differentiators that started to become apparent for me was that I worked in a provincial agency. I worked at the hospital level. I spent some time in the U S so I had a multi-level angle on the health system. And I'd sort of seen it from various levels and positions, which really helped me in figuring out how all those complex pieces work together and how you need to understand problems and position solutions within them. And, you know, I'm in a strategy role now, hopefully something, something that makes me decently successful in that role is, is having had that uh, that multi-level understanding, because I certainly don't have the typical pedigree of what most people in a, in the strategy would have. Yeah, that, that's uh, really interesting too. When you think about uh, strategies, early roles really started off with probably more of a patient focus uh, in research and then kind of taking that lens and that perspective on moving forward in your uh, career. So with that, uh, we see that you change responsibilities moving forward from more of a research role to a program development role after taking on a new position as a health services specialist at, at Accreditation Canada. What led to this transition away from research? Uh, and did having some of that business background from your undergrad uh, help you with this move? Yeah, that, that was a really interesting juncture in my career. Uh, and there's probably a bit more context there that doesn't show up in my CV. I started at Cancer Care Ontario right out of graduate school, and it was a six-month contract I started. And, you know, coming from Sault Ste. Marie, not having really seen much of the world, going to McGill, it being a really international school, kind of opened up my worldview a lot to, you know, different cultures, met people from different countries who were studying there from all over the world. So when I was approaching that contract at Cancer Care Ontario, I said, I'm going to stockpile a bit of cash and I'm going to go do some traveling when I finish my contract. So six months got extended to nine, nine got extended to 12, and then I got offered a, a permanent position at the end of the year. But my lease was up in Toronto and I was like, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I, I actually resigned in a, you know, in good form and not burning any bridges from that position. 
and uh, I took what I describe as my first mini retirement. So never having been anywhere, I, I went with a buddy. We filled our backpacks and uh, it ended up for me being just over six months. We started in India, went through Nepal and then seven countries in Southeast Asia. And, you know, with the worldview that I had at the time, it was just it was probably the second biggest inflection point in my life seeing how people live in those other countries, meeting local people, meeting travelers from all over the world, sort of seeing the different sense of community in other countries, the different problems that people face really uh, attuned me to a bit of minimalism and, and what the fundamentals of happiness are. And uh, I think I learned as much in that six and a half months outside the classroom than I probably learned in a lot of my educational career, both about the world and about myself. So, you know, I don't like to dish out advice, um, but I would say, and it, it almost feels a bit ignorant or privileged to say in the global pandemic that we're in right now, but uh, if not travel, if, if you can get out there and get outside of your comfort zone, and really experience uh, new ways of seeing the world. There's so much growth in that. I know that your primary audience is probably a lot of students. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to where I was when I was coming out of school, there's this huge pressure to figure out, like, get your first job right, get in the work world and start on your career path. You know, and it fits along with the cliche of, I guess, life is short, but life's not that short. You know, the life expectancy in Canada is 82 years now. Uh, you'll probably work for 40 of those. Like, you guys don't have to get this right, even in your first few cracks. So <clears throat> if you can slow down, you know, if it fits in your life and responsibilities, take some time to explore not only within your career, but things in the world outside of it. Uh, I think there's a ton of growth there. But uh, back to your question again. Uh, Coming back, I did want to step out of the research realm, and I it took me a while to find the right job in coming back, but uh, I landed at Accreditation Canada, maybe an organization not a lot of people are familiar with, but it's a not-for-profit organization, and it's based out of Ottawa, and it works across Canada, driving safety and quality improvement work in the health and in a sense, I, I almost describe it to some people as uh, a consulting company because they have a bit of a, a set of standards and they'll go in, they'll work with organizations to uh, raise the bar in quality and safety to meet those standards and, and support organizations in implementing some strategies um, to improve quality. So it was fantastic for me because it gave me exposure, you know, coast to coast, north to south. I visited almost every province and territory while I worked there, went inside of different healthcare organizations or conferences and saw, you know, both in the acute care sector and in other areas of the health system, um, how they operated and what some of the challenges they were facing. So three years in that position was such a great learning, both about the health system across Canada and, uh, and also just an opportunity to visit provinces that I probably never would have bought the plane ticket to go and see myself. Yeah, that's another, uh, another common theme from a, a few episodes back that, that you hit on there is just that how much you can learn from traveling, not only around the world, but just even around Canada, learning about our, our own culture, things around the country. 
uh, a lot of learning opportunities there. And I think a lot of people our age don't realize that. So that's really cool. And uh, speaking of traveling the world, taking on new horizons, this one's not as far as India or Southeast Asia, but your next role after accreditation Canada was at uh, Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. So you manage the reform of uh, delivery systems for the accountable care organizations. I guess one thing, one question on our mind early on in our career that we haven't uh, touched on a lot with previous guests is how do you get go about getting recruited for a job in the U.S.? Did they reach out to you? Did you just want a change of scenery and reach out to U.S. companies? What was the process there? Well, in my experience, it started with meeting a girl. That was the, the accelerator for it. Um, I met a, my now wife, friends in Toronto, and uh, she had trained in medicine abroad, like gone through medical school in Ireland. And you kind of throw your name into the hat for residency positions back in North America. And so she landed at Dartmouth College down in the U.S. And it um, so we dated long distance for a few months or probably more than that. And uh, and then it was really kind of that decision point that either I move down to the U.S. and we figure it out or, you know, we go our separate ways. So um, serendipitously, uh, she set me up for a coffee chat with a professor who worked at Dartmouth College. And uh, this professor was, you know, um, I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with accountable care organizations, but they're. They're basically the U.S.'s model of what Ontario health teams are in, in Ontario. And they just got started probably about a decade before we did. And the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice, where I ended up working, was like the birthplace of accountable care organizations. One of the leaders there coined the term, and they were really the leaders, the thought leaders in developing that model and some of the early research around its effectiveness. So I just serendipitously landed for uh, coffee with the professor who was looking to some, for someone to run her research team. And uh, I, see, I just happened to have in the kind of the skills that they needed at that time. And because Dartmouth is an educational institution, they're exempted from some of the visa quotas that it takes to get a working visa in the U.S. And so uh, they saw me as a great fit. New Hampshire and Dartmouth College is, is sort of like a return to home for me in a way. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere in New England. It's a really small town, again, like in the in the lands of forests and rivers on the, on the Vermont border. So they do sometimes have a tough time recruiting people up there. So they went to bat. I got a visa. And, uh, you know, it just looking back, it's so coincidental that after two years of working there, figuring out the strategies that accountable care organizations were using to become successful and interviewing executive teams all over the U.S., I came back to Toronto and sick kids and it was only, I think within the year probably that Ontario announced they were moving to Ontario health teams. Uh, so I just had a fantastic knowledge base and I really think that helped, you know, what happened in my career after coming back. To but again, it was luck in right place, right time. Yeah, it definitely sounds like things really lined up, uh, you know, meeting a girl and then career wise, it all lined up, too, which is amazing. Uh, it's great to hear uh, from from that uh, accountable care uh, organization 
uh, perspective. So when you first landed in the States, uh, did it take some time getting used to the healthcare system being so different from ours? And what were some of your major adjustments in the work you were doing when you first started at Dartmouth Institute? Great question and, and bang on really. It was a huge adjustment in my first, you know, several months there, if not more. I just sat there and kept quiet through a lot of meetings, jotted down acronyms that I had to look up after because it is really, truly a different health system down there. It's very much uh, in many instances market driven in a way that the Canadian system isn't. And so it took me a lot of time to learn all the players. You know, it's obviously a much bigger country with far more states than we have provinces. So there's a lot of variation even from state to state in how the health systems are set up and funded and organized. So uh, it was a huge learning curve. But again, I think every time if you sort of graph my learning versus time curve, it was every time that in my career that I took a leap and tried a new position, when you get these massive bonuses of, of new knowledge. It was neat for me to work down there for a few years, really start to understand the nuances and the strengths as well as weaknesses of the U.S. system, and then bring that knowledge with me when I came to Canada. In addition to becoming really familiar with the healthcare system itself, you had a lot of interactions in that role with the people in the system. So you, part of your role was interviewing healthcare leaders from across the country. So I'm sure that's leaders in uh, like hospitals or, or physicians or all sorts of different people. Did you find from interacting with them, a different mindset for the physicians in that country with regards to maybe more of a uh, emphasis on profit or any, any kind of different mindset of the public health leaders down there? Yeah, most certainly did. Uh, and it would probably often depend on what the corporate orientation of the either hospital or health system that we were talking to. Some of them that are profit oriented or shareholder driven, we would really pick up quite quickly that it was kind of business motives rather than um, you know patient centered values and patient outcomes that were you know if not in the fore and sort of of equal importance. And then when you talk to other health systems uh, that are more mission driven or nonprofit organizations you would really see that emphasis that probably feels a lot more like the Canadian health system where patients and families and their health collaboration and partnership are really at the forefront of where our focus goes and how we achieve success here. But it was pretty eye-opening down there, especially on the market-driven side of their health system to see how different payment models and incentive structures really influence both the good and the bad of, uh, of the American health system. Well, like getting exposure to that early, so early on in your career too, must have been really interesting. Uh, I know both Tyler and I are working uh, mostly in Canada right now. We get, uh, we're both working in roles where uh, we're understanding more of the public, more patient focused side, and uh, also taking on some roles in the future in the private side. We might notice some of those differences in, in private healthcare too, even within Canada. So that's like great learning you had early on in your career. Uh, one thing I did want to uh, mention too is you, you mentioned the idea of uh, 
you know, growth through discomfort. And uh, that's also been an ongoing uh, theme in our in our podcast. So I did want to highlight uh, you're in this role, you as Tyler mentioned, you had the chance to interview a lot of healthcare leaders and synthesize the information they provided uh, to really uh, provide recommendations or solutions. So what did what would you say is your uh, approach uh, in stakeholder communication, when you're trying to work in more of a, a consulting type role? For me, it's really about listening. And that's why uh, you guys have your homework set out for you today, because I, I'm usually more of a listener than a talker, which I guess doesn't work so well if you're a guest on a podcast. But, you know, it, especially in unfamiliar environments, uh, like I was in, you know, in some of my Canadian roles and in the U.S., I would enter every room, A, prepared. So I would have done a lot of homework uh, in a lot of meetings that people would have rolled into cold, I'd probably done a bunch of reading heading into that meeting. But even still, that was just to kind of give myself a baseline understanding. And I would just always ask a lot more questions and, and listen, and soak in information. Uh, almost every room that I walked into, I would just make the assumption that there was a lot of things that blind spots I might have or big information gaps. And there were things in there that people know that I didn't. And so I would, I would approach, you know, any kind of stakeholder engagements with that mindset to sponge in new knowledge and information and ask questions to help pull that out of people. And uh, I think through that approach, you, you kind of build a, a trust or it's disarming for the people that you're engaging with. Uh, that they can be open and, and have some authenticity to the relationship. So that's always kind of been an approach that I had then, and I try to keep it as well. So heading back to Canada here, uh, Sick Kids. Everyone knows Sick Kids. It's a big, probably brand, you, you might even say, in the public health space in Ontario, and I think even in Canada. Uh, it's a huge hospital for caring in pediatrics. And uh, that's where you headed. You were there for two years as a senior program manager before Dartmouth, and then you returned as a senior pro project manager in strategy and operations after Dartmouth. So was there something in particular that drew you to sick kids, whether the culture or the research going on there or anything like that, that drew you there originally? And what drew you back there after Dartmouth? You nailed it. I think it was the culture. It was, and it's hard to describe because it's a bit of an intangible. So when I worked at Cancer Care Ontario, it was physically located in Princess Margaret Hospital, which is right across the street from Sick Kids on University Avenue there. Sick Kids had the better food court. So often I would walk across the street to have lunch at Sick Kids. And I wasn't involved in any work at Sick Kids at all, but there was just something about the vibe of being in that organization. I think it's the orientation around pediatrics, there's uh, just a different care and optimism, I think, within the walls. And so when I had moved back from, um, I guess we skipped over one part. When I, when I left the job in Ottawa, I did a second mini retirement. And I, I went and traveled Central and South America in my second mini retirement. And so when I came back from there, having had that exposure to sick kids culture just through the food court, uh, I was targeting sick kids as a, uh, a place to work. And I was you know, privileged enough to, to land a job there. 
it was located within sick with kids, but it was really an externally facing role that was managing some provincial networks. Uh, so it was almost in a way uh, a sidecar on sick kids at an organization called the Provincial Council for Maternal and Child Health that's embedded within sick kids, but externally focused. Uh, so it, I got a nice taste of sick kids there because we worked really collaboratively with, collaboratively with them and also exposure to the pediatric health system which has a lot of its own nuances. Uh, so I headed down to the US as we talked about, and then coming back, uh, SickKids was, was really a place that I had on my hit list again, uh, as I was seeking jobs coming back to Canada. Yeah, my girlfriend recently did a clinical placement there. She's in nursing school and she had nothing but rave reviews to say about it. Uh, she had a great time. So, and just from reading about it, Sick Kids just sounds like everyone's having a great time. The Toronto Maple Leafs are showing up, obviously a hospital, but just compared to a regular hospital setting, it just sounds like, yeah, like you said, the vibe is just more upbeat and people are, uh, you know, have, have a lot more passion there. And not that other organizations don't, but Sick Kids just sounds great. And one thing we've commonly heard in our MBA program, one phrase that our professors has said to us a lot is culture eats strategy. So you're the strategic director behind an organization that's very well known for its incredible culture. Do you find that maintaining that positive culture at Sick Kids or contributing to that culture is part of your strategy? Or is the strategic part of your job, like the financial and business standpoint, two separate entities from the culture and you need to balance those in some way? I think there's a lot of truth in that quote that you made culture eat strategy for breakfast. And so any strategic initiatives that we're trying to roll out or that we are having on the horizon at sick kids, there's always going to be a cultural consideration that is, is the current state of the culture appropriately conditioned or shaped to uh, set an initiative up for success. And if it's not, if there's not a readiness there, or if there's some resistance, uh, it's really a change management exercise to figure out that cultural piece and set up uh, an initiative for success. So I think that's uh, that quote kind of resonates through time and, and will far into the future. I did want to kind of discuss a little bit of strategy going into it a little more. So strategy uh, seems to be a niche in healthcare that you really stuck with for a while now. I can imagine that healthcare strategy looks very different from traditional business strategy roles where you're implementing new innovations that are based on more of a competitive landscape or market forces. What drives strategy in healthcare? Is it funding available, population health needs and dynamics, a combination of some of these factors? Well, I think in healthcare, it, it starts with building a shared vision. So in, you know, for example, and we recently released SickKids 2025, which is our blueprint for the next five years, the strategic plan guide up. And I think a strength of the development process was just really, really deep engagement. So we went out and talked to patients and families that were both sort of uh, receiving services at SickKids, but also those just out in the broader population. We talked to thousands of staff within the organization, and that's kind of across our three-part mission of research, education, and care. We talked to partner organizations across the health system. and From that ocean of ideas, we're able to build a shared vision. So I think that's really an important first step in strategy, is building where you're going to be heading 
from the ground up. Uh, and from there, it's really, it, it becomes about execution and it's orienting the organization, putting the proper funding and resources behind it. And most of what happens in our health system, whether it's within our walls or outside, needs to be done extensively through collaboration and partnerships. So it's fostering those relationships, curating them, um, and really bringing people together around that shared goal so that we can execute. So speaking of where, we're guiding an organization to where you envision it going down the road, innovation uh, in public health is a big part of that. And one part of your role that you specified on LinkedIn is the management of emerging technologies. So innovation is obviously huge in healthcare and it can be difficult to break through for smaller innovative companies to breakthrough in Canada's healthcare system just because profit isn't exactly top of mind. But SickKids prides itself on innovation in child health research, and it also works with partners like the Can Health Network to help pilot new healthcare innovations. And I'm sure procuring these innovative technologies must be relevant to your role or relevant to the strategy of the organization. So when you have an idea of how an innovation or a partnership could help improve sick kids from a strategic or operational standpoint, how would someone in your position or a similar position in another organization go about championing those technologies or those innovations to get them implemented implemented in the organization? It's a, it's a great question. And it's one that I, I don't know if we've just nailed the right pathways for innovation technologies yet. But I think we're really actively thinking about what evolved versions of pathways in and out of the organization for innovation technologies look like. Uh, I mean, every healthcare organization these days is, in a sense, needs to be a health tech company too. We just know with the digital transformation happening that it will be so fundamental to the future of high quality health services. So we, we have a focus sometimes on outbound technologies, uh, which I think we understand a little bit better when we have a discovery or build something in-house, how we can kind of scale that internally or move it out into the world. Where it gets a little harder, I think, is figuring out the best partnerships and business models around bringing in new technology. Uh, there are so many fantastic, agile, emerging companies and technologies out there. You know, if we had the time and the funding, we would love to work with, you know, most of them. Uh, but we work in a really finite resource environment and, and it's quite fiscally constrained. So in selecting a technology, I think a upstream step is to really understand what the, if it's a patient care need, or a research need or an educational need, we really need to clearly understand what the problem is that we're trying to solve and then go out and finding a technology that sort of would get us to that aim. Rather than thinking, you know, that's a neat technology, let's see how we can shoehorn it into the kids. Um, we really try and start with what's the problem? What do we think we need to solve it? And how can technology help us to do that? But a, but a really interesting space, you know, you mentioned the, the huge emergence of health tech companies, big and small. I think something that we need to do, put some attention to figuring out is what do in the, in the modern era in a public health system, what do the business models look like that underpin relationships between an organization like SickKids and a, and a tech company? Because historically, that was, you know, healthcare organization procures vendor and you're in this payer vendor relationship. 
But what we know from years of experience is that especially a lot of early stage solutions, they need to kind of get inside our walls, especially nowadays, they need to train models on our data. Uh, they need to be validated within a healthcare organization and workflows. So there's a lot of partnering on development, shared intellectual property that goes into making a technology solution you know, fit for success. And it's a shame to have gone through a relationship like that and validating a product and then just landing in this payer vendor relationship where prices can escalate over time and often things can quickly become unaffordable. Uh, so we're thinking about with some of the companies that we work with, what are the evolved business models that is more sustainable and mutually beneficial? Where we're not just you know a payer and a vendor, but different forms of partnership uh, to grow technologies and scale them over time in sustainable ways. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. I mean, you know, doing my co-op at the Can Health Network right now, just working with sick uh, kids on some projects, we've seen uh, a lot of success in the innovation and implementing technologies there, and uh, just a lot of project proposals coming from sick kids. So they seem very on the on the higher end of the willingness to innovate and that eagerness to innovate. So it's really cool to see uh, the the innovation that happens there, and the fact that they make innovations in house is also really cool. And I think uh, Abhinav was ready to hop on a question there. We did have a chance to speak to some consultants from Deloitte, KPMG, and Accenture, uh, and learned about the implementation of some very large digital healthcare projects. What are some trends in digital healthcare technology you see coming in the future? Um, and how, where is SickKids going with some of this tech that's coming in? A big one that's been very top of mind and a lot of my team's bandwidth in the last probably two to three years is virtual care. So um, we, you know, pre-pandemic in about 2019, we really saw that the, all the ingredients in the right recipe to scale virtual care were, were finally starting to come together. You know, for decades, there'd been telemedicine work happening at SickKids and around the province. But in, you know, 2018, 19, the consumer demands were kind of starting to shift to, to ask for more convenience in virtual care. The provincial policy and the payment models were coming around to it. And there was a maturation in a lot of the technology support virtual care work as well. So uh, in 2019, we brought an a enterprise-wide group together at SickKids and developed a virtual care strategy, which was our blueprint for how we were going to scale up solutions in the years ahead. And then about, I don't know, six, eight months after that was endorsed at SickKids, uh, the pandemic hit. And we had all these kind of business cases built around virtual and staged approaches and a lot of change management. And when the pandemic hit, it was a silver lining, I guess, is that it was one of the biggest accelerators imaginable for virtual care. So we, you know, almost in the course of two weeks, flipped the switch on a lot of virtual care solutions that might have had, uh, in the absence of COVID-19, uh, a year or two of change management to, to migrate them across the hospital. Uh, so what we've seen sort of in the months since with the rapid uh, expansion of virtual care is that I think historically a lot of organizations approached virtual on a use case by use case basis. So depending on different services or patient population, they might procure a software technology uh, a different one for each patient population or use case. 
And in an organization like SickKids, where you have pretty complex patients that cross multiple services, that might mean a patient and a family, you know, over the course of a year and a lot of touch points with the health system, having virtual visits on a number of different solutions with different logins, different user experiences, different learning curves. So even on the provider side of that, you might have providers having to learn up on different virtual solutions. And with that, in an organization, you know, there's there's licensing fees that comes with that. There's privacy, privacy and risk and legal assessments. And there's internal training and maintenance costs that multiply with every new solution. So something that we're thinking about now is how do we start migrating the virtual care solutions that we have to a unified platform? Uh, so that when a patient and family comes to sick kids and they have to move across services, it's really a unified user experience for them in the virtual care. And really not just virtual care, but if you have a platform-based approach to you know, a lot of your digital health solutions, you can knit things beyond virtual care into that platform. And I think that's a direction that we're putting a lot of thought into now. Uh, we took a big step towards it with a recent implementation of a virtual urgent care solution, which uh, in a sense is a, a new digital front door entry point to pediatric health system. And we're going to look to branch out on that platform from there. With all these implementations of technology and, and digital transformation in the organization, we can see the link to science and technology that's involved there. But one way you describe your role on LinkedIn is that part of your role is the art and science of making choices to driving pioneering research and education and clinical services. So when you say art and science, what, what do you mean by that? What's your idea of the art and science behind your role? I think when I say that, it's getting more at all the human elements that we know are so critical in medicine. So you know, especially in the realm of strategy, often so much of the conversation uh, sort of gravitates towards digital health and technological solutions that will advance the care that we provide. But, at, you know, at the end of every one of those engagements, it's a, a patient and a family and a provider in a very human interaction that's wrapped up in vulnerability. And, you know, even when this these interactions are, are occurring in digital spaces even. We need to make sure that we keep our eye on the ball with respect to compassion in digital spaces and uh, sort of acknowledging those vulnerabilities and having true partnership with patients and families that the technology pulls together more closely rather than sort of creates a degree of separation. So, I think in strategy, part of what we do is, you know, the business cases and the finance and the technology to get us toward the aim of improving patient outcomes. But on the other side of that, it's kind of curating the talents of our staff, ensuring that we shine a light on the human experiences and the vulnerabilities that patients and families are going through. So I think successful strategy happens at the confluence of the art and the science in those two realms. Um, I do want to jump a little bit into uh, uh, just one question about COVID. Co we know that you've had a lot of busy time uh, given everything happening with the third, third, third wave. Uh, what has this uh, 
last few months of your role really taught you uh, in your position working in a hospital setting with everything going on? You know, probably a good opportunity to highlight what the biggest lesson for me is, is just that I'm an absolute awe of my colleagues and what they've accomplished over the course of the pandemic. So a huge shout out to all the healthcare heroes out there. Uh, I'm, I'm really inspired by the endurance and commitment. And in addition to their fatigue, they certainly have my uh, admiration. Uh, so that was one learning, just like the incredible resilience of that social floor built into the Canadian health system. Another, I think, would just be, you know, in, in the world that we're in, and I think heading to the future, there needs to be some comfort in ambiguity. And, you know, when this pandemic came upon us, it kind of, you know, at first it was a distant headline in the news. And then a week later, it was like very real. And the toilet paper was flying off the shelves in the grocery stores. And uh, the hospitals had to, you know, the whole health system had to really reinvent everything that we do and do it very quickly. And there are some learnings from past pandemics, uh, but there's, there's definitely in scenarios like this, no perfect blueprint for how to do it. So just the, the comfort of people making decisions in ambiguity based on the best evidence available at the time was a, a great lesson. And I think another lesson was just the importance of communication. You know, with the COVID-19 coming quickly, there was just a deluge of information out there you know, in mainstream media, on social media, in our own organizations from different areas of the health system. And it was revealing just how difficult it can be for the general public or even health professionals to get concise, accurate information. So it was, uh, you know, a good lesson on the importance of communication in a crisis uh, to rally people around the cause. I think when we look back on on this pandemic in future years, uh, the the debriefs and the lessons learned from it are going to be really, really profound uh, and interesting to study. Yeah, there's a, a lot of learning that's happened during the pandemic, obviously, and we just wanted to touch on a little bit of learning that you've done throughout your career outside of the pandemic also. So uh, we see that there's a Sick Kids uh, Continuous Improvement Program that you were a part of at Sick Kids throughout your career there. Uh, just wanted to touch on that. What what's what's going on there? What what are they uh, what are they helping employees out with along their journey? At Sick Kids, we have a process improvement innovation team, and they run this continuous improvement training. I really like the philosophy of it. They've trained thousands of Sick Kids staff, but they also run training for uh, you know both business and healthcare organizations around the province and even internationally. And the, the philosophy of it is really a toolbox. They don't kind of uh, place all their bets on one horse in terms of being lean or being Six Sigma or you know, some of the other paradigms out there. They teach you all of those. So you learn some lean, you learn some Six Sigma. Uh, they more recently started to incorporate elements of design thinking. And they teach you a lot of different ways to approach improvement and problem solving, and then encourage you to match sort of that tool from your toolbox to the problem, to the right problem when you encounter it. Uh, 
so that's that's one that I've done that there was great value in. Um, there's a lot of great leadership and equity, diversity, and inclusion more recently training that Sick Kids has done that that I've participated in and I found quite beneficial. But I guess also personally, uh, I've in recent years sort of gravitated to learning from fields outside of healthcare. I do find, you know, when I go to conferences or webinars, I guess because I'm just in the thick of it sort of day in and day out, the health-focused ones are often repeating um, sort, of, sort of the same conversations. They're important conversations, but uh, there was just diminishing returns for me, I think, because I'm sort of, sort of so exposed to a lot of these conversations. And I find that a lot of sort of learning and advancement will happen at the intersection of different fields. So if you think, you know, we were talking about tech a few minutes ago. If you think 10 years back, there was like a massive division healthcare organization and the big tech company. And now, you know, you have Apple, Microsoft, Google, uh, all of the big players, Amazon moving into the health space and sort of a huge tailwind of other companies that are sweeping along with them. And uh, I think as these, these sectors come together, there's a lot to be learned at the margin. So I almost, uh, in some of my learning now or, or not formal learning, but information gathering, I often look to other fields and then, you know, sit with it and try and draw out some parallels for how we might apply, you know, an innovation in another field in the Canadian health system. Absolutely. I think uh, uh, there's so much out there in the world and, and, and thinking in new and unique ways of how they could be applied to the healthcare system. Uh, just one example, Tyler and I worked on a case study where we looked at a GS1 global uh, supply chain standards used uh, commonly in agriculture and the food industry and kind of applied that to uh, for supply chain management in healthcare. But that intersection of technology um, is going to be more pervas pervasive in, in healthcare in the future. And uh, that will raise new topics uh, and emerging topics of data privacy, uh, more, more, more security over health records is going to be a topic that I, I think is going to continue for sure in the future. Uh, as we close off towards the end of the episode, we'd love to know a little bit more about uh, who is Greg behind uh, Sick Kids, behind uh, all the great work you're doing. Uh, we'd love to know what is uh, something you've been doing uh, during the pandemic? What's your kind of hobby uh, you go to to take a little break away from work? Sure, yeah. Well, I often try and escape the city. I live in Toronto now, but again, growing up where I did, I'm sort of my place of peace is out there in the forest. So uh, I often go camping and fishing or hiking outside of the city, uh, especially in the COVID era, been sampling all kinds of Ontario parks um, because we can't travel internationally. So uh, that's one hobby. Another one that I like that, uh, you know, over the course of my career, it's been an interest that I try and where I can merge in my professional work. Uh, I enjoy creative writing and video editing. So when we built Sick Kids 2025, that was probably the first time that, you know, there's a lot of graphic elements. There's a lot of videos that came out in the communications launch. So it was a pretty cool opportunity to merge some more of the, the arts and the science that I'm interested in. Uh, so I chip away at, you know, some creative writing that I never really share with anyone. 
um, just some video editing that I put up on social media. And Scratch is a bit of a, a creative itch that doesn't necessarily always uh, come out in the work world. But I think like everyone trying to trying to find the right routines and, and healthy rhythms in the sometimes groundhog day that can be COVID life. <laughs> yeah, perfect. That's a, that's a fun way to end it. We like to check in on those interests at the end of the interview. And, uh, you know, I tried out an interest lately, tried out longboarding, broke my leg. So I'm glad your, your interests are working out for you. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a great way to end it. Thanks so much for joining us today, Greg. Yeah, and you brought it back around to adversity with the broken legs. There Maybe we that's go. An opportunity <laughs> to, to overcome new challenges. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Thanks so much, Greg. Okay. Thanks, guys. And again, uh, good on you for, for getting this going and putting fresh content out there in the world. Thanks again for having me and uh, stay safe. And now it is time for the Healthcare Hub Spotlight, everybody. This week, we're taking a look at a new company called Can Immunize. They're an Ottawa-based company that was founded in 2018, but really seem to be hitting their stride during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's because they're an immunization booking system. Now, one would have thought that by this time in the pandemic, the government would have figured out some kind of consistent immunization booking and management platform across the province or even across the country, but they simply have not. So it's fantastic that so many people are hunting for vaccines now and everyone or a lot, most people are down to get it. And it's opening up much wider age groups who are eligible to get it. But there's still been a lot of concern from the public about how confusing it is to navigate these websites for specific regions or hospitals or pharmacies. So a lot of people in the media are saying that a platform like Can Immunize should be utilized by the government to manage everything. So what is it about Can Immunize that would make it so successful? Well, first off, it's not only a tool for governments and clinics, but for employers and any patient in Canada. The Clinic Flow platform can do virtual vaccine booking, digital vaccination receipts, employee vaccination tracking, and more for clinics, governments, hospitals, health authorities, businesses, whatever. Then on the Can Immunize app, Patients are able to securely store their and their fam family's vaccination records. It also gives you reminders of when you need a booster, has information on vaccination outbreaks in your province, tracks your appointments, and has Canadian vaccine catalogs to provide information on any vaccine products in the country. Now, Can Immunize is not just for COVID-19 vaccines, obviously. In November, they were doing a pilot with the Elizabeth Briere Hospital in Ottawa to simplify their flu shot clinics. Obviously, in anticipation of the COVID vaccine rollout in the future. Now, recently, Can Immunize has been in the news because of the success they've had working with Nova Scotia Health, who they tailored their platform to for the vaccine rollout, which has allowed the government to track all aspects of vac vaccination in the province, while patients are able to book their appointments, fill out documentation, and submit COVID screening all in advance on the app. Because of the success, the platform has started being used in Yukon's vaccine rollout, and they're in talks with PEI as well. This has left many in the media wondering why Ontario isn't jumping on board to get a platform like this or the rest of Canada. The platform was developed in Ottawa, so it's close to home. And we could get our vaccine booking system organized, uh, you know, in one more centralized domain with some a platform like this. So Can Immunize has actually worked with Ontario health units in the past on child vaccine tracking in schools, but they have not yet approached, uh, approached Can, Can Immunize for the COVID vaccine rollout. Uh, so I'm curious, Avanaf, 
what do you think is the deal with Ontario? And do you think they're going to pursue a centralized booking platform in the future? Or do you think this uh, decentralized system has been working so far? Yeah, it's an interesting point, Tyler. I mean, you know, just looking a couple of weeks ago uh, on the news, I, I heard about uh, vaccine hunters on Twitter being <laughs> highly followed because it was it was confusing at times when uh, we had, especially with the pop up clinics. Uh, and it's difficult to track all of that. So if you could centralize more of that information through an app, that'd be that'd be fantastic. My personal booking experience is kind of interesting too. Like um, being in a hotspot region, I went on was directed initially to the provincial booking um, system, which is awesome. Um, but at the same time, my friend sent me another link and the wait time was half the amount of time through uh, Trillium Health Partners. So it was interesting that there's different wait times and different links to even book. Um, yeah, more centralization would be great, but of course it's, it's, it's a very challenging thing when, you know, as we know, have, having to integrate all these different health networks and health systems, it, it gets challenging. So if a platform like this can help, definitely something uh, that should be looked into. And I'm glad other provinces are doing that. Yeah, it's definitely an issue when you have such a prominent platform like Vaccine Hunters Canada in existence. I feel like we should need to hunt for the vaccine, but obviously shout out to them. They're doing a fantastic job. They're a, if you're not following Vaccine Hunters Canada on Twitter, they have great information on where you can go hunt for your vaccine if you're, uh, if, you, if you're not, you haven't gotten it yet, but in any, any note, uh, yeah, can immunize. They're an interesting story to follow here. It's been picked up by the media a lot recently with a lot of stories on what's Ontario doing here? Why aren't they getting in touch with Can Immunize? So interesting thing to follow there. And that should about do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to episode 14 of the Healthcare Hub podcast. And we can't wait to see you next time. <laughs>